Let's open with a, a prayer uh, that we would be uh, good listeners of the Lord's Word and that we would be blessed by it. Let's pray. Our good and kind Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have not left us alone, uh, but that through your Spirit, Lord, you apply this Word to our hearts. And we pray, Father, that you might even use uh, the weakness of my words to proclaim it, that you would speak uh, through this sermon, through this written word, uh, into our lives, that we would be made more into your image, uh, less like our sinful nature, and more like the image of Christ that you call us to. Father, help us uh, as we seek to be good listeners and readers of your word. Help us to put ourselves under it, uh, to enjoy it, uh, to receive even the discipline of it as a garland for our necks. Father, uh, we thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen. Our uh, psalm today is Psalm 34, and we're going to read the whole psalm. It's printed in your, in your bulletin. Beginning in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, it's good to be with you. Welcome to any of you who uh, came in and um, are new here. Glad you're with us. We've been preaching through the Psalms, 90 days through the Psalms we're doing together as a church, and today we are doing Psalm 34. So Psalm 34, um, not all Psalms have this, but you'll see at the top, some of your Psalms uh, 
what this particular psalm says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. So this psalm was written with a particular context. And it's actually found in 1 Samuel 21. And I'll just uh, reiterate it for you. It's when David is fleeing Saul. And um, David uh, stops and, as he's fleeing Saul and asks this priest named Ahimelech. That's confusing. Ahimelech, not Abimelech, for some bread. And the priest gives him the bread of the presence, which is the bread that's set out in the temple before the Lord. And in addition to the bread of the presence, he gives him uh, the sword of Goliath, the same Goliath that David slayed. So uh, David leaves from there and then seeks help from the king of Gath. You know, this king's uh, name was Achish, um, but he has another name, which is Abimelech. Ahimelech's the priest, Abimelech's the king, also called Achish, all right. So he uh, is before this king, this king and his people recognize him as particularly great. And so David actually becomes afraid that this king is going to kill him. So he feigns madness. And the text says something like, uh, he let the spittle drip down his beard. And he and uh, David escapes death. And that is the context for our psalm today. So it's not much of a rescue from God, is it? I mean, not the kind of rescue you would think about. And yet, this is David's response, and I believe it's an awesome response and one we can learn from him. The main thing David is teaching us is this, and that is that the life of a believer is not so simple as believe God, trust Him, and have a nice life. The life of the believer is marked by this constant movement of affliction, crying out, and salvation. Uh, For the Christian, the good life is not a hallmark life, but it's a cross-marked life. In this passage, David is teaching us that God's people must learn the secret of overcoming affliction by fearing and blessing God at all times. Verse 1. So what does it look like to fear God and bless Him at all times? Uh, There's three things. So first, you have to be poor. Second, you have to taste. And third, you have to suffer. And those are our three points, and let's begin with you have to be poor. You notice that there are several places in this psalm where David says, um, this is the kind of person who fears God. Uh, Verse 2, he says, it's the humble who hears and is glad. Verse 6, it's the poor man who cries out to the Lord. Verse 18, it's the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit who the Lord is near to and saves. On the other side of this, we have verse 16. God is against those who act evil and evil. In verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So David sets up two categories of people, the righteous and the wicked. And the question for you is this. It's the question David's asking. Which category are you in? Which category are you in? Now, you may be tempted to think, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I do some good things, mostly good things. I do some bad things, but mostly good things. And maybe you would put yourself in the righteous category. But in the Psalms and 
really this is all of the Bible, the righteous are not those who are righteous because they are particularly good. They are righteous because they are God's particular people. So if I could say it another way, if the only way you could be a member of this church or any church was by how good you are, we would have no members in our church. So a righteous person is not called righteous simply because they keep the law, but because God calls them sons and daughters, because God sets his love and his favor on them, and they call him Father and Savior. Because God calls them sons and daughters, they respond with obedience, not the other way around. So, then if the righteous are God's particular people, then the wicked are not only sinners, because we all sin, but fundamentally the wicked have no relationship with God. They don't know Him, they don't see their need of Him, they don't want Him. So, how do I work out these categories in my life? Uh, And it's like this. I want you to hear the posture of the righteous person. He is like a poor man crying out to God. He is like a broken-hearted man rejected by the one he loves. He is like a person whose spirit has been crushed by the weights of this life. But here's the key. This person cries out to God, save me. Save me. The wicked man does not do this. So here's another illustration. The righteous man in the, in the text, the righteous man who fears a God looks at the face of God and his face is radiant and there is no shame. Have you ever seen a radiant person? Uh, the, the radiant people are the best, aren't they? You see a radiant person and all of a sudden there's just, it's as if their happiness and their joy just moves through you. There are particular moments in life you see radiant people or I see radiant people. Uh, one is when, when a mother holds her baby for the first time. It's as if all that pain of childbirth momentarily is just not there. Uh, when I stand before a couple who's about to be married, and you see the radiance in their face, it's as if they were beaming. Maybe the joy uh, you had when you graduated, you worked so hard to finish that degree and there was a sense of radiance. The person who fears God and who blesses God at all times, verse one, has a radiance in his life that no man can take from his face. Why? Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. The righteous man was poor and God made him rich. They were brokenhearted, but God mended their hearts. Their spirits were crushed, and the Lord restored them. There is nothing that makes a face shine like your greatest fears relieved, your afflictions redeemed. What is the worst thing that can happen to you? Death. That's the worst thing. But death, even death, which feels permanent, not for the believer. 
Even death has lost its sting. One day, the dead will rise. What about shame? A believer, the righteous man, can look at the most perfect thing in all existence, which is God, and not have to avert his face. Shame is replaced with acceptance. God longs to hold your gaze. So let me ask you this. Are you radiant? Are you radiant? When you leave this church and go about your week, will your face shine as if you had been in the presence of God? Do people sense this radiance? Can the world look at you, maybe just your face, and get the sense that there is something different about this person? Secondly, do you avert your eyes? Do you avert your eyes? Do you have shame? What this passage is teaching us is that those who hold on to shame are actually filled with pride. That seems counterintuitive. Why? Well, because they are not the humble. If the God of the universe says to you, look me in the eye, look at my face, you better look at his face. Not because he's forcing you to look, but because there is only one person who can say to you with the utmost assurance, I accept you and I find you worthy, and it's the Lord. To hold on to shame then is to think that you know more about yourself than the Lord does. That's the definition of pride. So second, do you hold on to shame? Third, uh, this week when you encounter trials or difficulties, will you be the poor man who cries out? Or will you be the wicked who are slain by affliction? So how do you handle affliction? How do you handle hardship? Go to the Lord for salvation. All of these things David is telling us are supposed to be our posture before the Lord, the posture of the righteous man. So first, you have to be poor. Second, you have to taste. You have to taste. Verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This verse uh, could perhaps summarize the work of Jonathan Edwards, who wrote on the religious affections, and those in my community group are rolling their eyes. Uh, We studied Edwards. One concept um, that Edwards was working out in his book was what a role does experience play in the life of the believer? Edwards uses this term affections. Affections. And it was a more common term at that time than emotions, which is what we tend to use now. Um, now, affections is uh, more than emotions, but it's not less. Affections for Edwards was the place to which your soul is drawn. So the question Edwards asks is, what role do the affections play in the life of the believer, or what role does experiencing God play in the life of the believer? And this is uh, what he argues. He says, true religion lies in the affections. Now, he's not saying that a Christian should be ruled by his affections, or that our affections should even necessarily dictate our theology. But what he is saying is that you cannot truly be a believer in Jesus Christ and not have your heart moved. 
If you believe in Jesus, then your soul will be moved and your affections will change. Uh, Maybe before knowing Jesus, you know, my affections were for evil things. Now my affections are for the Lord. Here David uh, says it this way. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't know about God just by reading about him. In fact, from the outside alone, your temptation would be to doubt that he is good just by reading. You have to taste. You have to taste. Uh, in Ar- Archibald uh, McLeish's play, I might have butchered that name, uh, that parallels the story of Job, he writes this. You've probably heard this before. If God is good, he is not God. And if God is God, he is not good. So hear this. From the outside, when you are suffering, you will doubt that God is good. In fact, when you're the poor man, when you're brokenhearted, crushed in spirit, you may want to do anything other than go to God. Taste and see that the Lord is good is not a generic statement, but it's set in a particular context, the context of the psalm, which for Paul, Paul, for David, was a context of uh, embarrassment and suffering. David had to act like a madman to escape the king of Akish, spittle running down his beard. So if I can mix metaphors here, when you're suffering is when you need the taste of honey to brighten your eyes. In your suffering is the moment when you need to know and believe with all of your heart that God is good. In your suffering, you need to experience the uh, uh, affection for the Lord. So how do we do this? Well, the first step is we go to him in suffering, in trial, in hardship, in our sin, in our addictions. When you've been unkind, when you've been betrayed, when your spirit's crushed. The promise is this, when you taste, not only will you see that he is good, but you will be blessed. The text says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So I was thinking about the times I have experienced God, actually tasted the Lord, when my affections for Him have been full. Uh, There have been several significant times. The first one was actually when I was a new believer. I was a middle schooler. And it just hit me one day how great a cost that Jesus paid on the cross, not only for my sin, but for the sin of every person that would come to Him. The second was actually uh, several different instances in my life where I had been truly wounded by people I love. And in each and every circumstance, there was this strong desire in me to, to really hate that person and to withhold forgiveness. But every time I could feel the Spirit prompting me, Joseph, you have been forgiven much. You need to forgive much. And I did, and I can tell you, looking back, it was good. It was very good. In the Bible, Jonathan offers David honey. Uh, You know, you can know about honey, but you have to taste it to know what honey is really like. 
You don't know how good Jesus is until you take him in. You don't know how good God is until you have experienced a radiant face, and you don't know freedom from shame until you know God's loving acceptance of you. You have to taste it. So have you tasted it? Have you tasted and seen? You know, different denominations of Christianity can either overemphasize or underemphasize experience. And we don't want to do either of those. Uh, but here David says we have to taste. There has to be some experience of God. Um, in Germany, if something has a lot of flavor, then you say es schmeckt. Es schmeckt. It means it literally, it tastes. It tastes. Is there flavor in your faith? Are you going through the motions? Are you alive on Sunday and dead the rest of the week? Then you are not tasting. Maybe fear is keeping you from tasting. Are you timid or shy? Is there a person you've been thinking about sharing the gospel with, but you don't? Then you're not tasting. Is there a person you're withholding forgiveness from? Maybe holding a grudge or just keep procrastinating uh, forgiving that person. You are not tasting. Are you afraid of someone? Maybe a, a boss or a family member. You are not tasting. Lastly, are you dwelling in shame? You are not tasting. Experiencing the goodness of God will require you to take a bite. And that's an action on your part, whether that's evangelism or forgiveness or fearing God alone or being courageous in this life or casting off shame, you have to taste. So you have to be poor, you have to taste, and then lastly, you have to suffer. Well, that's a horrible third point, isn't it? <laughs> you have to suffer. What do I mean by this? Um, well, let's look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Why the righteous? Why does it have to be the righteous? To be a Christian, to be a believer in Jesus, I said, is not a hallmark life. It's a cross-marked life. When you become a believer in Jesus, you invite into your life affliction. There's two reasons for this. The first, uh, John 16, 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Jesus suffered, if we follow him, we will suffer. The second reason is this. The Lord will use your suffering as a refining fire making you more and more into the image of his son. Not one drop, not one ounce of our suffering will be wasted. Now, you may ask, why does God have to work in this way? And the answer to this is because of our rebellious and sinful hearts. I want you to think about it this way. Um, remember, you have those two categories, righteous and wicked, um, not based on how good the people are, but to whom they belong of the righteous category, verse 19, they will have many afflictions, but the Lord will deliver him out of them all. 
The other category, verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. For the believer in Jesus, God is taking our sinful, stubborn hearts and making them into humble, contrite hearts that image that of our Savior. Ones that are quicker and quicker to go to God for salvation, like the poor man crying out. So when affliction comes, you will be saved. On the other side, affliction will slay the wicked. As soon as a trial comes up in your life, you don't go to God. But maybe you melt, maybe it destroys you. Or maybe you go to other things. Maybe that's food or sex or companionship. Or maybe it's pride and self-reliance. Those things will ultimately fail you. Now, am I saying that the whole Christian life is suffering? No. No. And thankfully, we have verses 10 and 12. God will take care of you. God does not enjoy our suffering. In fact, biblically, he suffers with us. He suffers for us. And we'll get to that uh, a little later. Verses 10 and 12 are there to remind the singer of this psalm that while you may suffer, God will provide for your every need, and God does desire you to actually have a good life. It's not unbiblical to say this, but what is a good life? It's not primarily a life that has no suffering. It's primarily a life that finds its goodness and loveliness in obedience and love of the Lord. One of my favorite verses in this passage is verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Uh, one reason I like it is, is just personal. I've been brokenhearted. There's no pain like a broken heart. Also in the past, my spirit has been crushed. And if the Lord was not near to me, I would have been destroyed. But another reason uh, is that I believe this verse shows God's friendship to those who suffer. You know, when your spirit's crushed, when your heart is broken, uh, the best of friends will come to you and put an arm around you and just be with you, let you be sad. In verse 18, the Lord is both friend and Savior. He's near to you in suffering. He's a friend who stays near. But here's some truth that a friend cannot do, and that's save you. He's both friend and Savior. Do you know what really crushes a suffering person? What really crushes a suffering person is not knowing that there's an end. A person can endure suffering for, for a time, but eventually, and I don't care how strong you think you are, if there is no end, you will crack. But if you know that there's an end, that God will save you, then you can endure. The best example of endurance comes from verse 20. Uh, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So this verse is related to Exodus 12, 46. Remember Exodus, then Passover, where um, God says of the, the Passover lamb that's to be served, that not one of its bones is to be broken. It's an odd statement, but it's actually made most clear in Christ. 
Uh, in John 19.33, it states, the legs of Jesus were not broken. Why is that important? It's important because they would often hasten the death of a, a crucifixion by breaking the legs of the person so that they would um, not be able to hold themselves up anymore and then you would take a breath, you try to take a breath, but you would suffocate because uh, you couldn't hold yourself up by your legs. Jesus did not die quickly. Jesus took the full punishment in our place. It would have been a mercy to have your legs broken to stop the suffering, but Jesus endured it all. Now, it's not the physical punishment that Jesus endured that's the point, is it? It's what it represents. Jesus didn't pay the cost for some of your sins or most of your sins. He paid the cost for all of your sins. And because he was faithful, because he endured, because his bones were not broken, you can endure. Now, I'm not saying, oh, look at Jesus, a great example of endurance. I mean, that is true. But what I'm saying is he endured a punishment you will never have to endure. You may be brokenhearted, but you will never experience the broken heart of Christ. You may be crushed in spirit, but you will never be crushed the way Jesus was crushed. And you may be humbled, not the way he was humbled. You may be poor, not the way that Jesus experienced poverty. But here's the gospel. Jesus was poor, so you would be rich. Jesus was humbled, so you would be lifted up. Jesus was brokenhearted, so your hearts would be mended. Jesus was crushed, so you would be remade. And lastly, Jesus was publicly shamed so that you could look at the face of God without shame, radiant. That's the gospel. And if you believe that, your affections will change and you will taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll leave you with this encouragement you know, a taste does not take much. It doesn't take much to taste, just a little. This week, when you have an opportunity, would you taste the Lord? Would you give him a chance? Whether this is your first taste or your millionth taste, you will find that he is good. Let's pray.